0: God is good all the, time. all the time. Hey, welcome to everybody in the cafe. Welcome to everybody online and at our CM and our Millstadt campuses. We're just so glad that you join us every Wednesday for Going Deeper. I also want you guys to know part of 500 that we'll be introducing really soon is going to be an emphasis on this service. So you're going to get some going deeper specific kind of cards to hand out that are just going to invite people to this specific service. So just be praying about that. Be praying about who you might invite that, that this would just really, really connect with. Because I, I think there are a lot of people in this world, to quote some old Alabama where people are in a hurry and don't know why, just to breathe, just to breathe. And just to be in the presence of God, this is a really simple service. There's worship and there's word. That's it. That's all we got. And I think there's a lot of people that are looking for that. I am absolutely convinced that there are more people ready to give Jesus a try than there are Christians willing to invite them. And so let's just be praying about that. Let let God move in your heart there. Be praying for this service Have you ever wondered what really matters? If you had a limited amount of time to live, what would matter then? And I have a bit of a newsflash. You do have a limited amount of time to live. So it may be good to ask what matters now. I'm not talking about what people think matters or what this culture thinks matters. But what really matters? Some years ago, I had a a staff person on the administrative side of the ball who was really, really stressed. I mean, really, 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 really stressed. And I asked what was stressing her. And she pointed to all the weekly reports that she was compiling. And I said, well, just explain them to me. And so she explained all these weekly reports and how long it took. And I said, what would happen if you didn't do this one and that one and that one? She goes, what do you mean? I said, what would happen if you just didn't do that? She said, nothing. I said, maybe you just shouldn't do them. You know, maybe you just shouldn't do them. Why do you do these? And the answer was because that's what she had always done. It was the job that was handed to her. Nobody had really thought about it in years, whether or not we needed these things. It was just how it was done. And I wonder how much of what we do on a day-to-day basis simply runs an unexamined template. The question isn't, are we busy? We're all busy. Even people I know who do nothing think they're busy. The question is, are we busy with the right things? There's an old story about a family that had ham every year for Thanksgiving, and it was a part, I mean, for Easter. And it was a part of their family tradition that they would cut the ends off of the ham. So both ends of the ham would be cut off. And it had gone through the generations, three or four down, and finally somebody decided to ask a question. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? So a daughter asked her mother, who said, I have no idea. It's just what we do. And her mother asked her grandmother, why do we do this? And she said, I have no idea. It's just what we do. It just so happens they had a great-grandmother who was still alive, sharp of mind, not as strong of body, And they approached her and they said, why do we cut the ends off of the ham? She said, oh, honey, my grandmother was an immigrant. And for years, they lived in a tiny apartment in New York City. And it had a tiny, tiny oven. And they had to cut the ends of the ham off to get the ham in the oven. Sometimes it's good to ask why we do things. And are we doing things that matter? I recently posted some thoughts on Facebook that resonated so well with people that it reached over 38,000 folks. And here's what I wrote. I have heard lots of Christian parents complaining of late about the escalating costs of the kids' sports industry. It got me to thinking. I would suggest that regardless of what you're paying, If you don't have your kids in church most Sundays, the price is higher than you ever imagined. I love sports, but not to the detriment of spiritual development. Sport is a great character builder, but a poor God. Clearly, a balance between faith and competitive sport is possible. But I do wonder if the graven image of 2023 isn't a cheap metal medallion and a Facebook post. Where is a good place to rethink things? Just begin with how many of the past eight Sundays you've actually had your kids in church. For most, the number is far fewer than they tell themselves. Church shouldn't be a place we go if our schedules happen to be clear one Sunday. Church should be what keeps our schedules clear most Sundays. They're not your kids. They're God's kids. He's entrusted you to raise them. And nothing is more important to God than that your kids know Jesus. Nothing. Prayers for all. First thing I'd want to say is that I love sports. And I love kids in sports. I was asked to play on a couple of softball teams uh, over the summer And I said no, not because I'm a fairly old dude who's trying to avoid injury, which is true, but it's not why I said no. I said, no, 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 I I don't want to play anymore. I've done that for my whole life. I want to spend the summer watching my grandsons play baseball. And I got three of them, and they play on different teams, so I'm going to need to rotate things around a bit. So I don't want to play. I want to engage with them. So I got to tell you, I love sports. I, I love Kids sports, the best part of my formal education was delivered every bit as much on the field and on the track as it was in the classroom. I did not write this post to browbeat people or to make parents or coaches feel guilty. I just wanted to provide something to think about. And one of the people who shared the post just simply wrote, "gut." check. I truly believe you can raise great athletes and great Christians. I I truly do. We have a Sunday school class that meets at 11 in the loft above the gym every week called Win It that's dedicated to this simple conviction. But I do believe raising Christian athletes these days is a challenge and it takes intentionality. I'm not concerned that sports won't get their fair share. I am concerned that if we don't take care, God won't get his say in the life of your children. I wrote this post simply to question a template that too often goes unquestioned. I wrote to point out that the most important thing for Christian parents is not that their kid get a scholarship. It's that their kid knows Jesus. And the game you want to win It's the game of life, not a game that's won on the field or the track or the course or the rink or the mat or the court. I was just trying to shine a little light on a subject. I took a look at the insights. Five people hid the posts. Three reported they never wanted to read anything I wrote ever again. I love it. Love it. Yes, that's what we're talking about. In the passage that follows, Paul reminds his readers in Philippi of what really matters, whether they like it or not. Verse 10, For I want you to understand what really matters. See, I didn't have to be real clever with that one. (laughs) So that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. Keep in mind, Paul is writing to Greek Christians The church has been there for about 10 years. These are people who are growing in their faith. They're not newbies anymore. And he's equipping them for the long haul. For him, living a pure and blameless life meant giving your whole self to God, knowing the scriptures, living in obedience to Christ, and abiding by your God-shaped conscience. If you spend time trying to convince yourself that the Bible doesn't say, what it clearly says, you're probably not living in purity. If you're always trying to justify a thing or an approach to life, there's a good chance you're not living blamelessly. Paul was really big on developing a God-informed conscience and then living by it. The bottom line is that if your biblically informed conscience is telling you that your priorities need to be reexamined, Then your priorities probably need to be re examined. And if someone speaking truth makes you mad, what made you mad could be that they were speaking truth. I've said it so many times. I hate it at home when Melissa accuses me of doing something that I've done, it just makes me angry. We had some company coming over once, and she said, I said, Is there anything I can do? And she said yes and I thought that was a rhetorical question <laughs> and I said what and she said I need you to, to go dust and clean up the dining room this is back when we had a dining room now we have a cabin which doesn't have a dining room which is great because we don't really dine we eat in a cabin so I went into the dining room and I got a thing that she gave me and I just around a few seconds and then I sat down and check my phone for 15 minutes to kind of level out the proper amount of time. And then after about 18 minutes, I said, hey, sweetheart, all done. And you know what she had the audacity to say? This is really gonna upset you guys. She said, did you actually dust anything or move anything? Or did you just wave a cloth around and sit in there on your phone? Boy, that made me mad. That just lit me up that I was accused of doing what I did. <laughs> you see, our consciences, our God-informed consciences kind of work like that. It's, it's a way that God speaks to us. And sometimes being asked to examine our lives and the templates that we run are exactly what God wants us to do. And if it makes you mad, it's probably because you know you're out of line. Sometimes, to quote the old axiom, if the shoe fits, you just got to wear it. There's a huge difference, however, between guilt and conviction. And I want to be very clear about this. Guilt is just not helpful. It's, It's just not helpful. Conviction is godly. Guilt beats us up over things we can't change. So if you've made mistakes in your past and there's nothing you can do about it and you just beat yourself up every day of the week, that's guilt. That's guilt. There's nothing redemptive about that. There's nothing you can do about it. Conviction gives us pause. It offers us an opportunity for forgiveness and for redemption and to pivot in a way that's pleasing to God and and move forward. I'm especially fascinated by the Greek word of rather suspicious origins, if you're an etymologist, uh, that is translated pure here. It's a really fascinating word. It appears to be a compound word uniting two unlikely concepts sunshine and to judge is purity. Sunshine and to judge is purity. So let's deep dive. I really like baseball cards of old Hall of Fame baseball players from the 30s through the 60s. This is a card that is in my office. It's part of the reason I keep my office locked. (laughs) It's an exhibit postcard from the early 50s, and it features satchel page. It's blank on the back. It was made by the Chicago Company exhibit, and back then they sold it... In penny arcade vending machines, in places that Americans took vacations like Atlantic City. you didn't get in a pack with tobacco or gum. they were in vending machines, and, and there also were like movie stars and wrestlers and all kinds of other stuff as well. And there were a few baseball players. Now at first glance, these old cards just look great. But only a very few of them are in really, really good condition. And almost none of them are in pristine condition. Sometimes they'll tell me, somebody will tell me about a card bringing in hundreds of thousands of dollars at an auction. And I'll just say, you got to understand, that refers to only a handful of marquee cards representing marquee players from 100 years ago in unbelievably popular sets that look like they just came out of the pack i got to tell you, this card isn't that. It isn't that. And your card isn't that either. It isn't that either. I can almost guarantee it. From a distance, most cards look great. But when you get a bit closer, they often have dinged up corners and creases and dents and print spots and factory miscuts. I hate to say it, but when you get close, it's kind of like looking in the mirror when you're 60. (laughs) Melissa has this cruel thing. We each have our own bathroom. any, Any of you couples each have your own bathroom? It was great. Kids moved out. We both just shot for our own bathrooms, right? I mean, it was a sprint. Greatest thing we ever did. But in my bathroom, there's a rather cruel thing. There's a mirror in there, which is fine. And then you flip it over. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? And the second mirror is like a magnifying mirror. I got to tell you, I'm 60 years old. Some mornings when I wake up, it's not looking good. It's just not looking good. I, I just look in the mirror and I think, ugh, horrible. And then if you think that's bad, you ought to flip that mirror over. And if you think that's bad, you ought to turn all the lights on. It is a horrible thing to behold. You know, with ball cards, the only way to really judge the condition of a card is to get somebody that knows what they're doing to examine the card under a magnifying glass with bright light. The light enables an expert to judge the authenticity, to see all of the imperfections, and to evaluate the true condition of the card. In my life, I found a lot of beat up cards to be authentic, but I've discovered that almost all counterfeits look great. In fact, I'm at a point in my life where I'm just really suspicious of marquee cards that look too good. They're just fake. Paul suggests that Christians must evaluate ourselves in much the same way. The intense light of God's holiness reveals our true character. And it's only from this illuminated vantage point that we can have what the King James calls an honest estimate of our faith. And it's only from this vantage point that we can really determine godly priorities for our lives, because the priorities you set for your lives don't need to come from the culture. They need to come from the Lord. And you need to make peace, because a lot of things we do in life, we have to balance. We just have to balance them out. And it's only in this light that we can see clearly enough to make these hard choices. It's only in this light that we can see God's will for our lives and our relationships and our families and our friendship and our work. It's only in this light. And guess what happens? The closer you get to Jesus, the brighter the light gets. And right about the time you think you're a good Christian, they flip over the mirror. Dead serious, right about the time you think you're a good Christian, they flip over in the mirror and turn up the lights. You think, <sighs> do you remember the account of Jesus telling Peter to cast his fishing nets on the other side of the boat in Luke five four through eleven? Peter obeys reluctantly. Remember what he said? He said, "Jesus, we've been fishing all night, and no offense, you're a carpenter." But you know what? you say to do it in. So he finally casts the nets. And you remember the story. He caught like a gazillion fish, so many that it was bursting, breaking the nets, and he had to get people to help him get all of the fish in. Do you remember what Peter said to Jesus in the aftermath of that? Do you remember what he said? This is what he didn't say. Can you fish or what? I've never seen a carpenter with a sense of fishing like you have, dude. No, that's not what he said. This is what he said when all of those fish were pulled out of the water. Lord, please leave me. I am a sinner. And Jesus essentially responds, now that you grasp the depth of your own sin, Now that you have seen yourself in my holy light, now that you have looked at your life in my presence and in my power, now that you've done all that, Peter, you are ready to be promoted. From here on out, we're gonna have you fish for men. Wow. With his realization... Jesus didn't heap condemnation on him. He promoted him. And in fact, it was until Peter hit that point that Jesus could do anything with him at all. I wonder how much of our lives we sort of restrict our own growth in Christ because we're so concerned about looking good. I wonder how much of our lives are just so consumed with appearances. You know, social media, my gosh, social media is, is kind of built for that, isn't it? So many people give you these, these kind of wrinkle-free and beautiful lives, and you look, and gosh, my life's not like that. Here's the deal, guys. Their life's not like that either. They're just showing you highlight films. They're just showing you the highlight films. I did learn something. Those of you that are baseball people, you're going to love this. You want to win? You you want your kid to win baseball games? Just get on Facebook because 99% of the posts I see on Facebook are of kids who won games. Right? I mean, 99%. Nobody posts when they lost. Nobody does. Hey, my kid went 0 for 4 today, made three errors, and all the other kids wished he was on the other team. Nobody says that. We just kind of throw our highlights out there. And so often we're so concerned about throwing our highlights out of there. And not only in front of others, but in front of ourselves. And Peter stands before Jesus and all those fish. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, now we're getting somewhere. The light. You ever notice the lighting difference between a fast food hamburger restaurant and a good steakhouse? (laughs) You ever notice? If you really want to notice, go into the restroom. Look at the restroom mirror in a good steakhouse, and you are met with tasteful decor in the background, soft, warm lighting, pleasant scents, and the place is spotless. They might even have a place for you to sit down. Who wants to sit down on a regular chair in a restroom? And you look in the mirror, and how do you look? Great. They're playing wonderful music, Maybe smooth jazz. A little Sinatra? You're thinking you look a little rat-packish yourself. You look great. You are dressed well, you smell good, you look smashing, you feel utterly sophisticated and a touch urbane. And the big idea is really clear. You can eat whatever you want tonight, and who cares how much it costs because you look great. The restroom in a fast food burger joint's really different. First of all, the decor is the cheapest stuff sold in America. I mean, it's just unbelievably cheap. It's stuff that you can easily wipe down. It's just no one ever has. <laughs> the lighting is high wattage. It's utterly harsh. I mean, it's, it's the kind of lighting that can make you look like you have blemishes if you don't have any. The place is filthy. Filthy. And it smells like something died in stall number two three weeks ago. You look terrible. Everything about it is terrible. They're like playing songs by Toto. This is bad. They're not playing the greatest hits either, man. They're playing the fillers off the albums. The big idea is you're, you're hopeless. Order the triple bacon cheeseburger and chili fries. And if you have money left over, order another round. There's no hope for you. You're in the bright light. Give in. The light is revealing of our souls as well. The brighter the light, the worse we look. But as we grow in Christ, we get to a place where we do start looking better, even in the bright light. And when we do, God is getting somewhere with us. And then on that day, when you think you're doing pretty good as a Christian and then God flips the mirror over, that's actually a good day too. The process by which God makes us better is called holiness. This gets us back to the basic fact that we're all sinners. It's something we must never forget You see, we'll never reach people for Christ if we don't love them, and we'll never love people if deep in our hearts we think we're better than they are. It's precisely because I'm a sinner that I am qualified to offer other sinners the forgiveness and the path of holiness that I have found in Christ. You wanna know what qualifies you to invite others to Jesus? It's not that you're a saint, it's that you're a sinner. I have found that when I offer a witness out of humility, then I always know that witness is offered out of love. I knew a person once who had a pretty radical conversion, and you know, they they weren't the world's best guy before, and a few years later they were certainly better than they were. And one of their old friends was talking about him. He says, You know, so and so's turned into a pretty good guy, but he sure forgets where he came from. For me, being an authentic Christian is remembering where I came from, it's celebrating the fact that though I may not be what I'm going to be, I'm sure not what I used to be. And God is moving me along a continuum. I think we need to learn to celebrate the times in our life that God is doing stuff in us. And sometimes it's answering tough questions that God asks of us. And that's actually a good thing. Sometimes we struggle with things and we grapple with things and we wish we didn't. But that's how Christians grow. It's how we grow. There was a much publicized revival that sprang up out of Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. The movement began with college students and was torched by a chapel message on the love of God that the speaker didn't think went very well. I'm kind of the opposite. He didn't think it went well and it went great. I almost always think my stuff goes great and sometimes it goes terrible. The revival quickly shifted from receiving God's unconditional love to personal repentance. Like that. You see, love and repentance are intrinsically connected. My mentor, Jim Sloan, who's spoken here before, once told me, let people know how much God loves them, and they won't be able to help but love God back. It's in the bright light of God's unrelenting love for us that a lack of purity within us is often exposed. The closer we get to the light of Christ, the more we see of our own flesh. of our own sin and that's a good thing it's a good thing the idea isn't to put on more makeup it's not to get a better filter have you guys ever seen some of those filters on Facebook that people put on pictures they say well I look 30 years younger no you look 30 times weirder I've told you the story before about me going and getting my hair cut. And the person cutting my hair said, you know what? I think I'm going to give you a compliment. And I said, well, give it a shot. And she said, so many guys your age are just trying to look young. They're dyeing their hair and they're getting all this work done. She says, you're just sort of going with it. And I thought, yeah, it's actually the strategy. I'm just kind of going with it. Uh, My idea is not to get injections into my skin. My idea is to get more comfortable in my own skin. And my idea is not to try to appear to be a better Christian. My idea is to try to become a better Christian. And sometimes to become a better Christian, you may not immediately appear better because you're struggling. And God's got you dealing with stuff and none of us want to deal with stuff and particularly not our own stuff. But that's a part of the process. It's just a part of the process. In the light of God's love, our sin is exposed. The idea is to allow Christ to examine us. I love the Psalm. It says, search my heart, O God. Just see if there be any wicked way in me, and there probably is. And you just kind of go at it. And if it hurts a little bit, it'll hurt a little bit. But at the end of the day, I don't want to appear godly. I want to be godly. And I'd rather be godly and not look great under the really nice mirror than I would to appear godly in my Facebook posts and not be right with God in my heart. You see... We don't want to appear saved. We want to be saved. We don't want to appear to be healed. We want to be healed. We don't want to appear to be whole. We want to be whole. And I'm just suggesting that you don't get that until you let Jesus do his work in you. The imperative of Christ, when Christ deals with us, is always go and sin no more. It's never as you were. That's my whole problem with modern theology that I think is completely off base. It's just as you were, as you were. You just keep right on sinning, God's right with you. I just don't see that anywhere in Scripture. When we encounter Christ, he changes us and the sin in our own life is exposed. We are brought to a crisis. We either swell up with pride or we get on our knees before a holy God and repent and are forgiven. But God is constantly bringing us into those crisis situation. God will not affirm our sin. God will not celebrate our sin. But God will forgive our sin if we ask him. And that's the good news of the gospel. I've just found that counterfeit Christians spend all their time trying to look good. But real ones can be dinged up a bit. They may not look as good under the bright light as they might wish. But that's not the question, is it? The question is, do you look better than you did yesterday? And if you do, that's something to celebrate. Something to celebrate. Being an authentic Christian has far less to do with appearing absolutely perfect on the outside than it has to do with being authentically God's on the inside. Growing authentically involves regular encounters with the Bible, being brought to the crossroads of obedience and disobedience, choosing obedience, and then doing it over again again and again, and again. And as we do that over time, we begin to look less like us, and we begin to look more like Jesus. In this 500 initiative, we're going to invite everybody. I I want to really encourage you to invite everybody. I read a, a study a few years ago. It just fascinated me. And it said that a, a large percentage of people said they've never been invited to church. And I thought, not a chance. There's just not a chance that's true. Flag. Right? Not a chance. And then I got reading the actual research. This is something people actually researched. And what they really found was people who look sort of Christianist already get invited to church all the time. People who kind of look like they might fit in to a Christian church Get invited all the time. But people who don't look like they would fit in at all, those people have never been invited once. And guess what the study found? A lot of the people who've never been invited once would be pretty open to coming if somebody just invite them. So I just want to say: go invite the people you think will come to church. And then go invite the people you don't think there's a shot at all that they'll come to church. You say, Well, what are we gonna do once they get here? Well, it's gonna be really, really easy. So here's our strategy. We're gonna welcome everyone who comes. And then we're gonna lead them into an honest conversation with the Bible. We're gonna be clear that we believe the best life of any human is lived in submission to the Word of God. And we're gonna be very clear that this message is grounded in love, not in hate. We're gonna be very clear that God accepts us but rejects our sin. God says, you can come on in, but you need to leave all that sin outside. And the closer we get to Christ, the brighter that light becomes. Whether people repent of their sin and obey God or whether they reject God's instruction is not a decision we can make for them. Our calls to do the inviting... And the welcoming and to be very frank with you my call is to speak the truth what people do with that is up to them that we do those things it's what we've been called to do as Christian people so invite everybody and if you see somebody that maybe looks awfully uncomfortable especially welcome them. Let them know how glad you are that they're here and and just genuinely rejoice in that and realize just as well that when they see what's in the Bible, they may decide, no, no, I'm going to hang on to my sin. And if they do, that's their decision to make. But inviting them It's what God has asked us to do. So if you have somebody that you invite to church and they come, and they don't ever want to come back, that's okay. That's okay. Because Jesus just said, you go spread the good news, and I'll take care of the rest. Our job is not to overthink things. It's to spread the seeds everywhere. And the promise of God is that some of them are going to grow. And some of them are going to yield 30, 60, even 100-fold returns. I've often said that sometimes God loves on us, and sometimes God shoves on us. We all like the loving. But don't resent the shoving. Don't resent the shoving. Let God ask the hard questions of you. Let the light of Christ reveal the darkness in you. Relent. Reconsider. Repent. Holding us to the light of Christ as it comes to us through the word of God is the process by which saints are made. You know, I just love the fact on Wednesday nights, I just keep sharing the Bible and you just keep coming back. And at times the stuff I share has got to make some of you just almost have career-ending stomach cramps. And you just come back the next week and it's sort of like, more please. But that's what serious Christians do. We wrestle with this stuff. I I told you a couple weeks ago how much I've been convicted about things the Bible says. I don't want to love my enemies. And if I pray for those that persecute me, I have other prayers in mind than Jesus was thinking. But there it is. And I can reject it. And walk away. And that's my prerogative. And I can deal with the consequences. Or I can accept it. And I can humble myself. And I can get on my knees before a holy God. And I can tap into the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away my sin. And I can let him continue to do his work in me. And that's the choice every single person you invite will have as well. Holding the light of Christ close to us doesn't always make us look good, but it keeps us honest and it keeps us real. And if you're going to be an evangelist, looking good isn't nearly as important as being honest and real, especially if you want to reach young people today. Be honest. Be real. Because Growing in Christ is not intended to make us look more Christian. It's intended to make us look more like Jesus. Almighty God, thank you for your word. I I really like the loving parts. The shoving parts are harder sometimes. Because deep in our hearts, we all just want to do what we want and have you feel great about it. But then we encounter scripture, and we find that you have opinions on all kinds of things. And we also find that when we open our hearts to receiving your word, that you've given us these things called consciences that begin applying the things that we've learned in scripture to how we live our lives. And Lord, we thank you for that. We just thank you for that. So we pray that you would keep doing your work in us. And every time we get thinking we're looking pretty good, we just pray you just turn the mirror over and turn up the lights. Because how we look to others doesn't matter. But who we are matters greatly. And whose we are matters even more than that. Lord, we're not perfect. We're dented up and dinged up and creased. Sometimes we feel like somebody took a clothespin and pinned us to the spoke of a bicycle wheel. But we are yours. And we are loved. Thank you. Thank you for the light of Jesus, who is the Christ. We pray in his strong name. Amen.